This morning we begin our summer in the Psalms, and each week we'll be encouraged from a different psalm, and this morning our scripture reading comes from Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains in pieces and cast away their restraints from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his anger and distress them in his deep displeasure. And yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with awesome reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest to be angry, and you perish in the way when his anger is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Psalms are hymns and prayers, and the genre is meditation. There is instruction in the Psalms, they're instructive in a sense, but they're not a list of instructions. They're not 150, you know, instructions they're meditations, and the reason I say that is because the, the poetry is rich and layered and provocative, and the Psalms give voice to the human experience, they give voice to all of the different emotions we can go through, they're imaginative and graphic and even, and even hyperbolic in, in certain contexts, but it's meditation literature. It's meditation literature that's given to us like a divine off-ramp from the highway of our speeding runaway thoughts, inviting us to empty ourselves before God with brutal honesty so that we can be recalibrated and rejuvenated by his thoughts. The purpose of meditation literature, the purpose of the Psalms is to get us to stop listening to ourselves and to listen to him. Stop listening to the myriad of voices in our culture, in our lives, and listen to him and his word. This is the purpose of this literature. I personally revisit Psalm chapter 2 regularly because I find it stabilizing. Um, it's a word of real stability in a, wor- in a world of, of instability. And there's two layers to this psalm, uh, well, many psalms. The, the first is the historical layer, which is speaking to the immediate context, this, this anticipation and this promise of, the one who would sit on the throne of David, this next king. That's the immediate layer, the immediate context. But of course, the, the bigger context, the, the second layer, is the anticipation of Christ, the ultimate king, the ultimate uh, greater David, the ultimate son of David. Verse 2, we see this where the phrase anointed one is used. The Lord and his anointed. And anointed in the Hebrew is Messiah. In the Greek is Christ. Well, this is who this is ultimately really about. So this is a messianic psalm, and it speaks of Zion. And whenever you see Zion in the scriptures, it's a reference to Jerusalem. It's another way of saying the city of God, the place where God rules and reigns. So this morning, 
with some of those things uh, in mind as a framework, we're going to look at this psalm, just the natural flow of the poetry, and we're going to examine three things. The first thing is a divine reality is announced. Secondly, a predictable rebellion ensues. And then thirdly, a wise response is warranted. So first, its divine reality is announced. All creation has a king. I'm going to borrow from the late uh, Tim Keller. He gave an illustration I heard once, and so I'm just going to adapt it for our purposes this morning. When you consider the myriad of literature and film and the obsession with kings, it is, uh, it is truly astounding. Even though in many regions of the world there's no longer forms of monarchy or royalty, but have shifted towards a democracy, there's still a fascination with the kings. And we have all sorts of stories and legends, and they never end, and they all sort of follow this pattern. Act one. There was a great king, and the kingdom thrived under the king's rule, and he was good and wise, and the people flourished, and the city flourished, and there was joy and happiness, and the people meandered through the streets, and they drank their wine, and they ate their bread, and it was wonderful, and it was good. Act two. The king dies. A rival king rises up and kills the king. A terrible thing happens, and the king goes missing. Somebody steals the king's son. A myriad of things happen in Act 2 where the good king is gone and now everybody's suffering and it's dark and it's gray and there's sorrow and there's tears and there's oppression and there's abuse of authority and the strong are standing on the necks of the weak and all this is happening and rolling and Act 2 is everybody's crying out desiring what comes in Act 3. The return of the king. And that framework resonates with the human soul precisely because we do have a king. All creation has a king. And even those of us in uh, contexts like North America where we say there is no king, there is no sovereign, we reject the sovereign. We just have coronation ceremonies for other things and make them sovereign. And we have kings. Maybe not necessarily political kings, but we crown other things kings. We make athletes kings, billionaires kings, people who are successful kings, internet influencers kings. We make our podcast heroes into kings. Our political uh, messiahs become kings. And, And rather than all of these people providing for us perhaps a provocative, thoughtful voice or interesting discussion to get us to think about the layers and the complexities of this world that we live in, we elevate them to king. And so they, we locate our identity in them. And if someone crosses our king, then our wrath you know, is uh, going to have to be bared because we, we all want these kings. We desire the king. The influence of the king is truly pervasive. We don't just hold them lightly. The ones that we elevate, the voices that we elevate as king in our life, their ideas shape ours. Their values shape ours. Everything from how we dress to where we spend our time to how we spend our money. Their influence is truly pervasive. In Plato's Republic, and I I love to reference it because I'm a Plato fanboy, not because I think he got everything right by any means, but it's just interesting to me that something that was written at around 380 BC still has um, striking political relevance today. But at any rate, Plato would talk about democracy um, as, as a limited system. He'd said that monarchy... The problem with monarchy is that while you could have a a benevolent leader, king, monarchy tends to turn to tyranny because people are not just. Plato didn't use the word sinful, but he would say they're unjust. So monarchy always sort of 
turns to tyranny. You could have an aristocracy where you've got wise, a group of wise and wealthy people who use their wealth and power for the benefit of those they lead. That could be good, but it tends to turn to oligarchy for the same reason people are not just. So then he speaks of democracy, which we as the modern West see as sort of the savior of all political systems. And what Plato said of that is, well, the problem with democracy is that the only way to stay in power is to uh, have the voice of the masses of the people. And the problem with the crowd is the demos, the crowd, the democracy. They are not philosophic. They don't love wisdom. They are comprised mainly of have-nots. And so therefore, to stay in power, you have to appeal to uh, the have-nots of the wisdom or the resource to maintain your power. And so the fundamental limitation of democracy, even though it does give us a voice and it is in that sense a good form of government, the limitation of it is it leads to bankruptcy. This is what Plato said. It leads to bankruptcy and ironically the revolution of regimes and another rise of a form of tyranny because enough people cry about the way that things are and they need a hero to rise up and so it can possibly pave the way for that. This is kind of the way that he talked about it. And the reason I bring that up is because humanity has this sort of soul depth memory trace of this longing for a king. Ecclesiastes 3 speaks about it. That we have eternity written in our hearts. And so there's some way in which we look at the world around us, whether you're here today as a worshiper, as a Christian, or perhaps you visited with a friend and you uh, would consider yourself agnostic or however you sort of, uh, you know, where you locate yourself this morning. We can all agree and find common ground on one thing, which is that we look out the window and we say, the world is not okay. Something is wrong. And so we're craving and desiring a king, one who would be wise enough and powerful enough to be able to right the wrongs and correct the injustices that we see in the world. And so in verse 8, we're given this really strong language about this king, the announcement that all creation does have a king. And the language in verse 8 is that all of the ends of the earth will be his possession. Clearly that cannot be a human king. Because there's a little phrase that we understand here in the West, and it is that, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But verse 8 seems to be saying that this king is going to have absolute power, which means this can't be speaking of a human. This must be speaking of a divine king. And to borrow from C.S. Lewis, if I look out into the world and I realize that my longings are not satisfied in the ways of the world, that tells me that at a soul level I wasn't created for this world. Not in the form that it is, anyways. There is a, a renewal of this world that I, that I crave. So the announcement is that there is a king, which leads us to the next thing, a predictable rebellion that ensues. We hate having a king. And that's where this, the, the poetry goes. Notice how God is spoken about. Notice how the anointed, the Christ, the Messiah, is spoken about. In verse 3, they're spoken about with slave imagery. It's, it's abhorrent language. May we break the chains, throw off the restraints. The way in which humanity views the sovereign God is bondage. We hate having a king. And the word for chains and bonds here in the Hebrew could also be translated yoke. I'm going to get to that later. But the, I, I say that because we are upset at the idea that we are not our own. George MacDonald was a Scottish writer and a minister, and uh, he was influential in the life of C.S. Lewis because uh, he wrote a, a lot of fiction. I'm not personally familiar with it, but I'm just giving you context for this guy. And he said that the central conviction of hell is, I am my own. 
The misplaced self-love, the coronation of self, where self is king. Where self is king, that creates hell. Creates hell in relationships, creates hell in the office, creates hell on the sports team, creates hell in friendships. It is the kiss of death to community. I am my own. The exaltation of self above neighbor. This all creates hell. And so the poetry leads us to recognize we hate the king because the king says, no, you're not your own. Over and over and over throughout scripture, the scripture in our king tells us that we're not our own. We hate that. We hate having a king. And I know that hate is a strong word, but I'll clarify why I'm using it. If the God that you want is vague, uh, then you don't have a king. You have a consultant. Because when the king speaks, you live accordingly. When a consultant speaks, you take that under advice. If you're part of an organization and maybe you're a business owner and you're brought in a consultant and they do interviews and they do metrics and they, they sort of go through your organization top to bottom and then they come to you with a report and they say, listen, we've interviewed your staff, we've looked at situations, we've looked at the financials, here are our recommendations. And that, what you do with a, with a consultant is you do not receive that document and say, bend your knee and say, oh, thank you, oh, oh consultant, we shall implement this on Monday. Most business owners say, thank you for that, we'll take that under advisement. And then they go through it. And they're like, I like that, I don't like that. We're implementing that, we're not implementing that. That's what a consultant does. But we don't have a consultant. We don't have a divine consultant. We have a king. He's wise and he's good and he's loving, but we hate it. Because he says we're not our own. He's very specific. He's not vague. We're okay with a God that's vague. But we certainly don't want a king that's specific who will talk to us about how to relate to our time. To say it's not all our own. Be generous. Love the people sitting in the chairs next to you. And that's going to be inconvenient. We don't want a king who's going to tell us that our money is not our own, but the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Psalm 24, verse 1. We don't want a king to tell us, use that money of yours to you know, li- live a flourishing life and also be generous with it and give it away to those who are in need and also take a portion of it and give it to the church so the proclamation of Christ can outlive you in the city. Take some of your money and use that. Be generous with it. We don't want a king that's that specific. We'd rather a consultant talk to us about how to use our money. Last week I spoke all about the, the, the wise guidance of God's word in regards to sexuality. So I'm not going to re-preach that this morning. But we wanna, we, we're okay with a vague spiritual consultant about how we relate to sexuality. But we don't want specifics. We don't want a king who would say that sex is to live within the context of a covenant marriage. That once you've given your emotions and your finances and your whole self to this person, then after that level of lifelong commitment, then give yourself sexually. We don't want that. We want a consultant who will say, no, 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 no. Your body is not a temple. Your body is a playground and it's yours. But our king says it's not ours. If we're married, it says our body belongs to our spouse, husband to the wife and wife to the husband. That's very specific and we're not about that. We hate having a king. So the, 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 opening, the opening scene of this poetry is that the people are raging. And what's God doing? He's laughing. What do we do with this? We're raging, but he's laughing. What do we make of that? Is he indifferent? Is he aloof? Is he a cosmic ogre just wringing his hands, going, oh man, I'm going to lightning bolt uh, come. What do we do with this God? No, 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 no. My friends, if you zoom out and you look at the whole gospel message at what God did, 
through Jesus Christ. God is not disgusted with us, distancing himself from a treasonous humanity. What God has done since Genesis is relentlessly and lovingly moved toward the treasonous humanity. It is not that God can't stand sin, to borrow from N.T. Wright. It's that sin can't stand God. Look at Exodus chapter 19 when God reveals himself. I mean, you back it up to the garden when uh, humanity is treasonous in the garden and God's first movement is toward, not away. If God was so disgusted with sin, he couldn't be with it. We wouldn't even have Genesis 3. Everything would have ended in Genesis 2. But when you go to Exodus, when you go to Exodus uh, 19, God shows up on Sinai in fire and smoke and lightning. And he says to Moses, tell the people to be careful. Don't touch the mountain or they'll die. He, God's intending to come to them. He's not saying, I can't be near you disgusting sinners. He's coming toward them in love and in grace. He's like, tell them not to touch. You can't look at the sun without burning your retina out. Tell the people not to touch the mountain or they'll die. It's a, it's a love and a grace and a mercy and a warning. Even the warnings are merciful. Because he is trying to draw to his saving grace. And so you see, when you look at Jesus, the eternal Son of God, what does God do? What does the holy God do? He wraps himself from the dirt of his own creation. He takes on human flesh. He moves into the neighborhood. It's not that God can't be with sin. He took on human flesh so that he could be with the sin. The sin can't stand with God. Jesus is the filter so we can be with God. So my friends, God is not laughing because he doesn't care. He's laughing because he's not intimidated. If you have a UFC fighter in a bar having a drink, just imagine you after the service tonight, you're hanging out with some friends and you go up the street, you're, hanging, you're sitting in a pub, and you say, oh my goodness, is that Conor McGregor? And there he is. And he's having a proper 12. And then this guy gets up and he thinks he's a tough guy and he goes over and he starts pushing Conor McGregor. Hey, you're not the champ, you're a chump. You're not the champ, you're a chump. Conor McGregor would probably laugh because he's not intimidated. When, when the nations are raging and those with political power and influence and affluence shake their fists at heaven at God. They say, we, there is no God. We are our own gods. We will organize these nations according to our worldview. We will, we will arrange our whole way of civic life and politics, our views of sexuality, the way that we handle money, the way we view the poor, the outcast, and the refugee. These are our policies according to our wisdom. It seems... From our point of view, like there's all this chaos and wreckage that's being brought into the world because of the poor decisions that you and I make. God is not intimidated by any of this. He's not pacing. He's sitting. Look, the God who sits in heaven's laughs. He's just simply not intimidated by any of it. And the significance of all of this is because he intends very much, and he already did through Jesus Christ, to move towards his treasonous creation, offering an absolute undeserved grace for those who will receive him, and a perfect justice for those who look in the face of the resurrected Christ and continue to reject him. In the end, there will be deliverance, and everybody in the end will get what they want. Those who want God and life with him will be united to him forever. Those who hate God and want nothing to him will be separated from him for forever. In the end, everybody gets precisely what it is that they want. And there's nothing more just than that.
Now, moving on to the the last thing, the wise response is warranted. We were created by the king, for the king, and in the end, both soul and societal flourishing, all flourishing is coming to those who receive the king. In verses uh, 10 to 12, we're, we're to be persuaded that we need the king. We gotta, we want, it says, kiss the king. Right? This way of saying that you understand the, the, the beauty of the king. You don't just see God as useful. He's beautiful. There's a love. We kiss the king. And then it, it goes on to say, as you're reading through verses 10 to 12, that if we don't kiss the king, the, the warning is that you will be destroyed in the way. Consider that phrase, destroyed in the way. What way? Your way. It doesn't say, kiss the king, or I will fire lightning bolts from heaven and destroy you. It says, kiss the king, or be destroyed in the way that you've chosen. You're raging, and you're organizing your life, and you're, oh, in a hundred years, you're not even going to be here, but... Have it your way, Burger King. This is a God who is not intimidated. Our God is not like a nervous kid in gym class sitting on the end of the bench hoping to get picked for dodgeball. Please, that's not our God. He's not intimidated. And yet, though he's not intimidated, he moves forward with such an undeserved grace. It is just tremendous. We are called Christians. In, in the book of Acts, they, they weren't called Christians. They were called people of the way. Acts chapter 9, 19, 22, 24. People of the way. And the king says to his beloved children, this is the way. And we live this way. And to forsake the way is to be destroyed in our way. And if you think about the language of what the way is, the way that... The way that the nations in this poetry relate to it is it's shackles, it's bondage, it's chains. Throw it off, cast it off. But restraint, wise restraint, the proper restraint is actually the way to freedom. We talk about this often here at Redeemer. That freedom is not just the removal of barrier and boundary so I can do whatever it is that's in my mind and my heart. Wise guidance is the right, the right restriction so that true flourishing can happen. Imagine if you have a child and you notice... That the child has an aptitude for something. Or you're a single person and you've got a niece or a nephew uh, or someone in your life, a, a family friend, and you notice this child has an aptitude for something. What's the next thing that a wise parent or mentor will do? What's the, what's the first thing you're going to do when you notice an, the child? Oh, wow, this child's really got a gift here. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to start bringing restrictions. You're going to bring a yoke. You're going to yoke the child to the piano or the violin or the bookshelf. Or code monkey. Or the hockey stick. I mean, you're going to start and you're going to say, oh, we've got to carve some time out of your life and your patterns and rhythms. And you're going to immediately start to introduce restrictions so that the child can flourish. All wise parents do this for the benefit and the flourishing of the child. When our kids were little, we would introduce, you know, there was constant uh, introducing of restrictions when we were trying to teach them things. When Rebecca and Isaiah were little, it's like whether it was bedtime or whether it was, uh, you know, when they started getting their first jobs, it's like, okay, we're sitting down talking about budgeting, talking about money. What do we do with our money? How do we handle money? Whatever it was, right? Trying to put in those restrictions. When you start to see aptitudes, oh, okay, we want to help uh, our children flourish according to their gifting, right? 
This, this past year, uh, Nigel was uh, in auto tech class and he was developing an a interest in a desire in becoming an auto tech. I said, okay, that's great. How do I facilitate this? What can I do? And uh, his, he was so excited about his co-op that he went, he went over and above the hours that were required. So actually it was three weeks left in school where he didn't have to do anything. He could have literally had three weeks off and he could have just chilled. And I was like, no, I yoked him immediately. I put a yoke on the boy. I was like, no, you don't have three weeks off actually. Welcome to dad's uh, school of automobile. I put a list of things, you can read these things, you can watch these videos. I went, bought him a notebook, and I was like, yo, you're gonna take a, that's right, like paper. It's like, you know what I'm saying? Because it's like, it's a bunch of, sorry, notebook, ref, I wasn't aware of reference. It's a bunch of paper that's at one end, it's got like a binding, it's like glue, and you flip through. Anyways, moving on. So I got him one of those, I'm like, Take, watch the video, take the notes, draw the diagrams, do your thing. Restrictions. Why? Not because I hate the boy, because I love the boy. I'm like, I see a gift here. No, you're not taking three weeks to do, no. We're going to develop some things. So the father, he, he gives the son. And the son in Matthew 11 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. That is congruence with your... With your needs, the, the life that you ultimately want is found in walking in the wisdom and the ways of God. And if a child comes to their parent when they're 35 and says, I'm so mad at you, I'm so bitter, I'm so angry. I could have been great, I could have gone pro, I could have been in the NHL, why didn't you make me practice more? What? You can't come to your parents at 35 and say, why didn't you make me practice? Nobody can, nobody, as you're moving into maturity, can put a yoke on you. That's what the poetry says. Let's cast off these restraints. They're grown adults. You can do it for children, but then at some point, you have to own the value. You have to own and interpret and integrate into your life and adopt the wisdom. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. He didn't say, hold up and brace yourself. Here comes the yoke. It's impossible. You've got to take it, see it, receive it, bend the knee to the king, see the wisdom, the love, and the wise guidance of being united to the king being yoked to the king. Because in the end, the restraints are the pathways to flourishing, true soul flourishing. And so we want to uh, submit ourselves to the one who is in the way. And when, we, when, we, when, with the, when the text says to us, kiss the king, we don't want to envision this stoic king who holds out his hand and you kiss a ring and he says, that's right, it's good that you know who's in charge. When we kiss the king, I mean, the king is jumping off the porch and running towards us prodigals and kissing us back. That's our king. What do you think the king does when the rebellious, treasonous person who says, I hate you, I hate your rule, I hate your ways, I hate your wisdom, finally turns and kisses the king? It's the, it's the image in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. son. That's what our king is doing. He's on the edge of the porch waiting for our return. This is the glorious, undeserved mercy of God. Jesus Christ is the king that Gotham needs, not the one that it deserves. So God laughs, but he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't become inactive. He doesn't just judge. He does precisely what we've just been talking about. He moves towards. He warns. The warning is a call. Do you see it? Be wise, O king. He gives this sobering warning. This is grace on display. God's constantly trying to save those who hate him. Be wise. He's calling them. The, the judgment, judgment day is coming. And judgment day is deliverance day. They're the same day. 
We often, as moderns, will say, well, I don't like the idea of a God of, of judgment. But we crave justice all the time. We're obsessed with justice. We're constantly looking at things that are wrong and saying, hey, somebody's got to make that right. And the only one who can cosmically make sure that in the end, every wrong is made, is made right is the divine king. And thankfully, not only is that perfect justice being administrated, but the cross is the intersection where we receive his mercy for turning to him and trusting him. He goes on to say, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That is reverence. We serve the Lord with this reverence, with this awe, with this amazement, like a child who's trembling because they've been given this great gift and their hands are trembling when they receive it. You know, there's two uses of fear all through the scriptures. One is a phobic fear and the other one is the awe and the reverence. And because I'm a pastor, the problem is pastors have a tendency of repeating themselves, so sorry. But also I'm a dad. Dads have a tendency of repeating themselves, so double whammy, I'm sorry. But the, but the fear that we're being called to is not like when I was once in South Sudan and a tarantula got in my room. And I saw the tarantula and I freaked out and I realized either it has to die or I'm going to die. Somebody's got to die. And right when I went to kill the tarantula, it scurried across the floor, not slowly like the movies, fast, terrifyingly fast. And every muscle in my back tightened and then I heard a small child scream and I realized it was my voice. And I killed the tarantula, and I could finally sleep at night. And that is not the fear of the Lord that God calls his children into. It's appropriate to fear God that way if you scoff in his face. Because in a hundred short years, you won't be here. And those of us who are created out of dirt and are one day returning there would do well to bend our knees to the creator and the king of the universe. But the fear that we're being called into is is like those who, for us, the church, the fear for us, we've, we've responded. It's reverence. The trembling is like someone who's been rescued from rough waters. They're rejoicing and they're laughing and they're crying all at once. They're trembling, but not because they're not secure, because they finally are. Jesus Christ is Lord and King, and blessed are those who put their trust in Him. Amen. Let's pray.